I invite you to take your copy of God's Word today and open it to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is the first of what are called, commonly called the major prophets. Not major because they're more important, just major because they're big. Uh, there are five of them in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, which is not as long as Jeremiah, maybe a part of Jeremiah, sister work to Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Uh, as we work through the next several weeks in this series called Woven, alternating between Old Testament, New Testament books and Old Testament books, this week we come to Isaiah. First Timothy last week, Isaiah this week. If you want to read ahead for next week, read Second Timothy in the New Testament. Uh, and then we'll be in Jeremiah and then in Titus through the rest of the month of November. Uh, this series, Woven, is meant to give us kind of a 30,000-foot view of several books of the Bible. Well, all of the books of the Bible in time. We've been at this, uh, I don't know, for four or five years now, maybe, occasionally. It's an occasional series, and, uh, and we're taking a chunk now uh, this time of year to, uh, to go through Isaiah. So find your way in the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah, and while you do that, let me um, just bring to your attention uh, one particular matter that uh, came up and that we celebrated and rejoiced in at our members' meeting last Sunday evening. Uh, if you're at our members' meeting, this is not news to you because you found out about it last week, but uh, if you weren't at our members' meeting, here's good reason to come to members' meetings because you find out important information like this. Uh, earlier at the beginning of this year, I'm sorry, not in the beginning of this year, in the late spring, early summer of this year, uh, Pastor and Danny and I worked with a number of men uh, helping to uh, uh, come to understand what the role of a deacon in the life of a church is, to provide some training and some understanding about that office, servants of the church, those who care for uh, uh, physical needs in the life of the church. And so over a period of several months, we went through some training and prayer and discussion with these. And at our members meeting last week, we presented to uh, our members uh, seven men as deacon candidates. So they're not deacons yet. They're from now until uh, our next members meeting in January, going to serve like deacons. And then at the end of January at our members meeting there, which again is important that you come to if you're a member, we'll vote to install them uh, as deacons at that time. So those, for those of you who weren't able to make it to our members' meeting, I just want to introduce these men to you. And men, I'm sorry, I didn't uh, warn you about this ahead of time, but uh, I guess that's part of, uh, part of being a deacon, is being ready for anything that the pastor might do at any given moment. So in no particular order, the seven are, and as I say your name, if you would just stand so the church can see you. Uh, church member, these are, these are men that you know uh, who are already serving the church in many uh, different ways and, uh, and who... Uh, I'm sure covet your prayer as they seek uh, God's continued wisdom and clarity about serving uh, perfectly as deacons in the future. So, um, so here they are in no particular order. Um, Nick Socklaven, if you'd stand, brother, so we can uh, gaze upon your visage. And uh, Chris Thompson, uh, Ken Steffen, uh, Paul Baum. I'm trying. Where's everybody else? Jim Leckel, thank you. And Greg Klein, is Greg out today? Okay, Greg's out today. Pray for Greg. Is he under the weather? Yeah. Yeah, okay, pray for Greg today. Greg Klein, one, two, three, four, five, six. And uh, thank you, Hollis Padilla. Gosh, so Hollis is over here. Stand up. Uh, see, when I do these things last minute, I always forget, you know, I know all the people and their faces. But So these are men, church, that we want you to be keeping an eye on, uh, to be watching over the next three months, to watch, observe their service. 
If you have questions for Pastor Danny or me uh, about these men and their qualifications to serve as deacons, we'd love to have a conversation with you about them. Most of all, pray for these men. Uh, ask that God would strengthen them for service, empower them with his spirit um, to serve you all, the church, in the physical and temporal needs that you may have. Uh, may I just voice a prayer for these men, and would you join with me, and then we'll get into God's word. Father, thank you for faithful servants who love your son and who love your church and who love giving their lives to care for others. I thank you for these that are here and standing before us this morning, for Hollis, for Paul, for Chris, for Ken, for Nick and Jim and Greg. God, thank you for these men who love their church and want to, uh, want to serve them well. We pray that over the next few months, as they work like deacons, not yet called as deacons to our church, but work like them, we pray, Lord, that you'd empower their service, that you would help us to come alongside them as partners in the gospel and partners in ministry, for caring for the needs of the church. God, we pray that you would give them tender hearts and thick skin, that you would give them great love for the flock of Christ that is here uh, and for meeting their needs as they're able. Uh, Lord, give us wisdom as a church uh, as we um, observe their character and their service these next few months, that we might uh, know what is your will for uh, selecting and installing these men as deacons. So thank you for these, God. Bless their service uh, to our church and bless our church through them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brothers. You can be seated. Well, today we foray into a new genre of, old, of, of biblical literature uh, in this woven series. We foray today into the genre of Old Testament prophecy. Now, if you spent much time in the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah through uh, Malachi, one thing has been for certain, or that you've probably observed for certain, that God has strong words and takes stern action against his people, Israel, when they act contrary to his character. That's again, a constant theme through the prophets is God punishing or discipling or disciplining, excuse me, his people because they've disobeyed. In Isaiah, the first of these so-called major prophets, major because it's longer, not because it's more important, the very same themes hold true. God is speaking strongly and he's acting with stern discipline against his people in Judah, the southern half of the divided kingdom of Israel, uh, and Jerusalem, its capital city. As we consider that Israel were God's chosen people in the Old Testament, called to convey his character and his covenant mercy to the nations, we may wonder in reading Isaiah and these stern words for his people there, why is God treating his people so harshly? If these are his chosen people... Why so strict, God? Well, the short, simple, and consistent answer to that question is evident all over the place in Isaiah. God is holy. That's why God treats his people this way, because he's holy. Now, holy, as a word, means something like set apart, different, committed for a particular purpose, maybe even committed for divine service. But it's also a word that when applied to God, when we say God is holy, it communicates something of his sinless and perfect otherness, that God is not like us in every way and entirely better in every way. God is far different, far greater. He's far more holy than we are. In fact, God calls himself the Holy One of Israel some 36 times in Isaiah, more than any other title or descriptor other than his personal name, Yahweh, or the Lord. He calls himself the Holy One of Israel. If you take time to read Isaiah through, and maybe you took time uh, to read Isaiah through this week, bless you if you did. It's not a short book, 66 chapters. 
you would have seen that theme or that descriptor of God, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, popping up almost every other chapter. The Holy One of Israel, in punishing His people through Isaiah and giving them a word of hope, is demonstrating His total control over all things. The Holy One is also sovereign. And He's demonstrating His absolute passion for His glory in the world. The Holy One is not just holy and not just sovereign. He's the only one worthy of worship. And He desires the whole world, all nations, to worship Him. And He chooses one man, a prophet named Isaiah, who lived in Judah to speak this message about His holy action against His people from about the years 740 to 690 B.C. We know that if we're doing dates before Jesus, we count backwards. We count down leading up to Jesus. After Jesus, we count up. So it's always kind of weird for me to do math backwards, but that's where we are today. 740 to 690 B.C., about 700 years before Jesus was born, give or take, was when Isaiah was prophesying. Now, hopefully you received a little... Uh, uh, outline a little note sheet that you can uh, follow along with this morning. Uh, and you'll see a number of different particulars there on the front page. We won't spend a whole lot of time there today. We'll get into the meat of Isaiah here in just a moment. But it's important to note some of these things. The author of this book, the primary uh, oracle giver, if you will, the one to whom God or through whom God speaks is Isaiah, the son of Amos, not Amos, but Amos. Isaiah was a relative of the royal family, and as such, he had access to Israelite kings, and he prophesied over the course of about 40 or maybe 50 years during the reign of four different kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We'll catch three of those kings uh, uh, briefly today in our reading through and study of Isaiah. And very likely, these oracles within Isaiah, an oracle is just a word of God through a human prophet were delivered and composed over the course of about 40 years, from 740 to 700 B.C., though Isaiah may have prophesied even as late as the mid-680s uh, before uh, Christ. We'll look at the breakdown of Isaiah in uh, just a moment as we work through it, but Isaiah is essentially broken into three parts. Chapters 1 through 39, a word of judgment against Jerusalem and Judah. Chapters 40 to 55, a word of hope for the people who would eventually be taken into captivity in Babylon and as they would return. And then chapters 56 through 66, which seem to be looking even further uh, forward into the future than even beyond the day of the return uh, from exile uh, from Babylon. There are several themes throughout Isaiah. It's funny, I have a, a study Bible that I work through when I work through uh, uh, this sermon uh, series in particular as I make notes and that kind of thing. And in my study Bible, they like to give a list of major themes in Isaiah. And the list of major themes in Isaiah in my study Bible is about this long. There's a lot of stuff here. And if you read through Isaiah and you've spent much time in the rest of God's Word in the New Testament, other parts of the Old Testament, your biblical reference radar is going to be pinging all the time. There's so much stuff in Isaiah that is referred to throughout the New Testament and in other parts of the Old Testament and themes from like Genesis all the way leading up to Isaiah's own day that are present in Isaiah's own life. Uh, it's, it's a little overwhelming, honestly, to read Isaiah because of all of this. We come to realize, man, God is saying a lot to his people. He's bringing a lot of threads together or sending a lot of threads out from Isaiah. I'm not really sure which way it goes. It's all, it's all a bit much. But four major themes that I would point out to you this morning, just to keep in mind as you study Isaiah in the future, are these. First, God's total sovereignty, his control over the affairs of the world and of his people. That's a constant theme in Isaiah. 
God's justice against wickedness. The holy God is a just God. It's important to recognize that. God's redemption of his people. He delights in rescuing sinners for his glory. We also see themes of God's promised king, a promised servant, a promised Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word for anointed one who will rescue his people. These are things to key in on as you read Isaiah on your own and and study it uh, in your own time. Look for those things, highlight those things, mark them out as you read. Now, in the scope of redemption history, again, creation, the creation of uh, the world and man and woman in the garden, uh, redemption history moving from the Garden of Eden to the fall, uh, first sin of Adam and Eve, breaking fellowship with God, leading into redemption, this, this uh, uh, rescue plan that God puts together, that God devises in His eternal wisdom to rescue sinners from their sin through His Son, Jesus Christ, who dies for sinners on a cross, who's buried and raised again in victory, who calls all people who hear the gospel message to turn to Him to be saved. And then the final epoch of redemption history, consummation, we're still waiting for it. We're waiting for, we're living in the time between redemption and consummation. We're living out redemption realities today, but we're also waiting for Christ's return and the new heavens and the new earth that he will bring with him for our resurrection from the dead, the glorification of these physical bodies to live with Christ in that place forever. Isaiah is admittedly kind of a difficult book to peg here in the scope of redemption history. Now, if we're thinking just timeline, it's kind of in that space around redemption and before consummation. God is is responding to the sin of the people of Judah, and he's giving them a promise of redemption. But also, as we'll get to the end of Isaiah, we see uh, God giving a word that's looking forward to that consummated kingdom, to that new heavens, that new earth, in those words exactly that is coming uh, at uh, at the end of this age. So it's kind of hard to peg Isaiah to put it in one particular place. I suppose if you want to just do it chronologically, maybe circle the the arrow between fall and redemption or something like that, because of course Christ hadn't come yet in Isaiah's day, but there's a lot of looking forward to it. But if you want to think about where Isaiah falls thematically in the scope of redemption history, well, it's, it's almost all of it. Because there's constant reference to God's power, creative power over all things. And there's constant uh, reminder of the realities of the fall and regular promises of rescue, redemption, and this hope of a consummated kingdom. So dealer's choice, you pick where Isaiah ought to go in redemption history. But there's a couple of options for you. Now, as you read Isaiah and prophetic literature, uh, it may be a little unsettling and disorienting to you if you haven't read prophecy or prophetic literature in the Old Testament before. A biblical prophecy is less about foretelling the future and more about telling forth what the Lord has declared regarding the current state of his people and what he's doing among his people. So we ought not read all prophecy as uh, future casting, forecasting what's going to happen in the future. A lot of prophecy, I would say the vast majority of it, is God speaking through his prophet about events in that actual day and what God is going uh, to do, how he's acting among his people. So when you're reading Isaiah and other prophets in the Old Testament, we need to ask questions like, what's the historical context of these oracles, of these messages from God? What's going on in the life of Judah? Because this is God's word to the people of Judah and Isaiah around the years 740 to 700 BC. What's going on there? Who are the kings? What's going on in the world? And why does that matter? We need to ask especially the question, how would the first hearers, how would Judahites in 700 BC, how would they have understood Isaiah's oracles? How would they have received these words from God? 
This much is true. The Bible cannot mean for us anything it could not have meant to its first hearers. There is consistent truth in God's word. Truth does not change. Truth is not malleable. So whatever God is revealing about himself, whatever he's revealing about his character, whatever he's demonstrating about who he is and how he works with his people in Isaiah, that will be consistent for all time. We need to ask a question like, what do the oracles reveal about the character of God and his relationship to his people? And how does God's revelation of his character then to people living 2,700 years ago, how does it apply to how his people should live now? How does God's character revealed to Judah in 700 BC uh, reveal how God's people living in 2022, uh, what does it mean? What is it, how does it apply to our lives and how we ought to live today? You have an outline for Isaiah there in your uh, there in your guide, and we'll roughly follow that outline as we work through this theme of the Holy One of Israel, God, acting among His people. As we come to the book of Isaiah, we see first in chapters 1 through 5. Now listen, Isaiah is a vast landscape of, of, of literature and oracles and details. We're not going to hit everybody's favorite passage in Isaiah today, okay? So uh, hopefully we'll hit some of your favorites. We're going to try to hit the high points, the important parts, summarize some others in between. Uh, if you want to hit the high points, um, you're more than welcome. Uh, the high points that I don't hit today, you're more than welcome to read Isaiah on your own and study that, okay? In chapters 1 through 5, we see the Holy One of Israel presenting his case presenting a case against his people. As the book of Isaiah, this prophet opens, we're introduced to the prophet himself briefly, Isaiah, son of Amos. And and immediately the Lord begins to speak through Isaiah against Judah and Jerusalem, its capital city. And very quickly we find that while the Lord is justifiably angry with his people, he's also brokenhearted over their sin. Isaiah 1, verses 2 to 4, the Lord uh, says through Isaiah, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. As his children, over the last 200 years of their history, since the nation split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, the Lord has been chastising his people for their flirtations and their affairs with idolatry. So much so that he says in verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 1 that he has effectively beaten them head to foot in discipline, and there's nowhere left to beat them. What am I going to do with you, Israel? From the top of your head to the sole of your feet, you're bruised and battered all over because I'm trying to beat you into submission to discipline you. And you keep running astray. There's nowhere left to beat you. What am I supposed to do? Their worship is pointless. Their worship is unreceived by God because they act with injustice toward the vulnerable among them. The faithful city of Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people is likened to a prostitute. And friends, that's just the first chapter of Isaiah. The Lord likens his people in chapter 5 to a vineyard planted with care and love, but which ultimately turned rotten. He says in 5 verses 1 and 2, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. 
Verse 7 of the same chapter. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, this is the problem of Judah in the days of the kings. Chosen by God as the offspring of Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, as Genesis 12, 3 tells us, uh, people redeemed by God to be a people for his own possession, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, like we read in Exodus 19. The people of Israel, and particularly of Judah, have become a company of scoundrels, puffed up with pride, and a day is coming. It's a day that's called the day of the Lord, when God will bring his people low. Isaiah 2, 12 through 17 says this, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Verse 17, And the haughtiness, the arrogance, the pride of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So God, the Holy One of Israel, has brought his evidence against his people. He's made his case. He's determined his sentence against his people. He's going to bring them low. The sentence is bleak, but the sentence is not without a glimmer of hope. Yes, the kingdom is in total disarray. And yes, they will be punished, but they'll not be removed entirely. The Lord promises to bring low the arrogant in Judah, to lay low the tree of Israel, but he's not going to uproot it. In Isaiah 4, verses 2 through 6, we read, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. What does that sound like? Sounds like God with his people in the wilderness, doesn't it? As he's leading them uh, between Egypt and before they get to the promised land, a cloud by day and fire by night. For over all the glory, uh, for over, excuse me, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Punishment against Israel, against Judah, will give way to hope and restoration among a few people. Not everyone, but a few. A remnant, a stump, really. God's going to lay low the tree of Judah and leave a stump from which the Lord will grow a new tree, a new branch, and around which he will place a new city. And that city to which he will call a new people, not just from Judah, but from all the nations. The Holy One of Israel will not be mocked, And he loves his people. He loves them enough to punish them. And ultimately, he might make them holy through that punishment. But first, God brings his case. But first he brings all this punishment. He's going to warn them. And so the Holy One prepares his prophet. Isaiah chapter 6 is a, a key chapter in this whole book. And I've singled it out particularly because it covers the call of Isaiah to his prophetic ministry. It's kind of interesting. Isaiah 6 seems a little bit out of out of place in time because Isaiah is already prophesied in chapters one through five. And then we get his calling in one through six. But Isaiah six might be one of the more memorable chapters of all of scripture for believers. In it, Isaiah has this amazing vision of the throne room of God. We sang of it this morning in a couple of our songs. Follow along in your Bibles in Isaiah chapter six, verses one through five. 
Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, the heavenly temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these angelic beings. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the face of the Lord, who is not just holy, he's not just holier, but who is holiest of the holiest, Isaiah knows, even as a prophet called by God, that his sin, and even though his sin likely paled in comparison to the sins of the people of Judah, his sin makes him unworthy to stand in the presence of this holy God. In mercy and in power, though, the Lord cleanses Isaiah so that he might stand and receive his calling from God. The Lord asks Isaiah, who shall I send? Who will go for us to my people? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And all of us have heard that sermon on Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Here am I, send me. A a, a message uh, imploring, exhorting, encouraging the church to that missionary call to go wherever God would have us to go. And that's a good message to preach all day long to ourselves and to others. But we often miss what Isaiah is called to do. Catch the context, catch the, the real, the calling of Isaiah in verses 9 through 13. God said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God is saying, Isaiah, your work is to prophesy so that people will not respond, to tell them all the things that I'm going to do, and to demonstrate to them their total disobedience and ignoring of my call to them. Verse 11, Isaiah says, in light of this call, How long, O Lord? That's a tough call. And the Lord said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Friends, did you catch that? Isaiah's call is not to go and preach to people who will repent, but to preach to a people who won't. The fruit of Isaiah's ministry, his success in ministry, if you will, is not going to be addition to the people of Judah, but subtraction. It's not going to be multiplication of their influence in the world, but a very division of their own ranks until nearly nothing is left. That's a tough call. Who's ready to say, here am I, send me to that? Nothing but a stump will be left, says the Lord. But this stump, like the remnant branch that will one day blossom, this stump is a seed. It's a holy seed. That word seed in the Old Testament is an important one. That word seed is a word that that is often understood as offspring. It's the same Hebrew word behind uh, behind both words. The promise of offspring, of a seed that will bear God's blessing is as old as Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 where we find that the seed of the woman, Eve, 
and the seed of the tempter, the serpent. Those two seeds will be at enmity. Their offspring will be at war against each other. But that offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That promise is expanded in Abraham's life when God promises that Abraham will have offspring through which the whole world will be blessed. That seed, the holy seed, is a stump. The apostle prophet reminded the church at Galatia 700 years after Isaiah, 1,500 years after Abraham, unknown centuries after Adam and Eve and that promise in Genesis 3, 15. Paul writes in Galatians 3, verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. That does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, says Paul, who is Christ. So already in Isaiah... We're seeing the trajectory of what God is going to do. Though his prophet cry out until nearly nothing is left and no one is left, God has not abandoned his promise to his people. Not just to Abraham, but also to the woman who sinned with her husband. A promise to bring a redeemer through that stump, which is a holy seed. The Holy One of Israel confronts his people. He calls a prophet and the Holy One promises a king. This is the next larger chunk, the largest chunk that we'll look at this morning in Isaiah chapter 7 through 39. This is the the main part of Isaiah, really. Isaiah 7 through 39 take place over the course of about 40 years in Isaiah's life and the life of Judah. There are two Judahite kings that are in view in these chapters. The first is Ahaz, and the second is Hezekiah. Ahaz was king of Judah during a period of war between the northern kingdom of Israel and the foreign nation Assyria. This was a period known as the Syro-Ephraimite Wars. Syria, which is a neighboring nation, not to be uh, uh, confused with Assyria, which of course it's totally confusing, but Syria, a neighboring nation to Israel in the north, they formed a pact together against Assyria. They knew that Assyria was bigger than the two of them, so if they joined together forces, they could push back Assyria. But in their pact together to fight against Assyria, Syria and Israel also decided to try to go against Judah. It's like, while we're at it, let's take over them too. God said through Isaiah clearly in chapter 7, verses 3 through 9, that Ahaz, king of Judah, who knows about this unholy alliance in the north about to come against him, God tells Ahaz not to fear this alliance, but instead to trust the Lord. Trust me, Ahaz, I got your back, man. God even gave Ahaz a sign to confirm what he was going to do. God said to Ahaz in chapter 7, Ahaz, ask me for any sign to, to, that, that I can give to you to prove that I've got your back, that I'm going to take care of you, to be with you through all this. Ahaz, in his false humility, says, oh, no, Lord, I could never ask for you a sign. And God's going, are you kidding me? I told you, ask for a sign. So in chapter 7, verses 14 through 17, this is what the Lord says. Fine, Ahaz, you won't ask for a sign? Here's your sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before this boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread, Israel and Assyria, will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the splitting of the kingdoms, the king of Assyria." This sign of a boy being born, whose symbolic name, Emmanuel, means God with us, his name was to remind Ahaz of God's constant presence with him. 
And he would also be a way of marking God's promise of deliverance. By the time this boy who would be born, perhaps it's Isaiah's own son that he names Emmanuel. By the time this boy was a toddler, Assyria would have defeated Israel and Syria. And sure enough, by 732 BC, Syria had fallen. And by 722 BC, Israel had fallen as well. But this son, Emmanuel, symbolic name means God with us, is not just a sign for Ahaz. The disaster is coming, Ahaz. It's coming for you. He's not the only child who lives up to this prophecy, who fulfills the meaning of this prophecy. He's not even the one who lives up to it best. Now, it's interesting. This prophecy of a son in chapter 7 gives way to another prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 after Syria was defeated, the promise of another child. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The Lord says, Uh, through the prophet, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, or maybe something like the Mighty God is a Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father is a Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, in Isaiah's day, there was no son that fit this picture in Isaiah chapter 9. There was no one who was born who would be a king on the throne of David, ruling with the character of the Holy One of Israel himself, king over an eternal kingdom. Never happened in Isaiah's day. Never happened among any king after uh, Hezekiah. But there's more still. The Lord says through Isaiah in chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So in Isaiah 7 and 9 and 11, we have this growing picture, a promise of a king, a promise that's filling out as each chapter seems to go by of a king who is Emmanuel, who is God with us, a son of David, a spirit-empowered ruler who is not like the unjust, unrighteous kings of Israel and not like the faltering, flailing kings of Judah. King Ahaz had a son. His name was Hezekiah. And in the years just before 700 BC, Assyria finally came to attack Judah. Now at that time, Hezekiah had made a pact. He'd made a deal with another neighboring nation, Egypt. Now we know from uh, biblical history, it's not a good idea to make deals with Egypt. But Hezekiah makes a deal with Egypt um, uh, to help to defend Judah against the Assyrians. Now a character shows up. He's called the Rabshakeh. He's an Assyrian military officer in Isaiah uh, 35, 36, who comes up to the fortified city of Jerusalem, stands out there with the army of Assyria behind him, and he taunts Hezekiah and the people living there. He even taunts them in their own language, uh, in in Hebrew, so that the people inside the city can hear him taunting them. The Rabshakeh even goes so far as to say that the Lord himself told Assyria to attack Judah. And Hezekiah responds uh, to the Rabshakeh and the Assyrian armor, uh, army, not with military force, not with new alliances, not even with cowardice, but instead Hezekiah responds admirably in prayer. Faced with maybe certain destruction from this massive army that outnumbers them, 
uh, vastly outnumbers them. Hezekiah prays. Hear the king's prayer in Isaiah 37, 16 through 20. Isaiah says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, cherubim or other angelic creatures, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib. Sennacherib was the king of Assyria at the time, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Now an amazing thing happens after this. After Hezekiah humbly prays to God for help, the Lord sends help. The Lord sends an angel from his own heavenly army and strikes down in the night 187,000 Assyrians in a single night. And Judah is delivered. Jerusalem is saved. And not long after this, though, Hezekiah falls ill. People get sick a lot in those days. People get sick a lot in these days. Hezekiah gets ill, life-threatening illness. And the Lord delivers him from this life-threatening illness. But then Hezekiah asks for a sign from God that was not his to ask. God, thank you for... Uh, healing me of this sickness. Now give me a sign about the future of my people. It's funny. Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, was offered a sign by God and refused it. And now Hezekiah, when delivered by God from illness leading to death, seeks a sign when God has not offered it. It's like Hezekiah nor Ahaz really know how to talk with God very well. Eventually, Hezekiah grows foolish in his old age. And when emissaries from the far-off nation of Babylon come to Judah for a visit, Hezekiah welcomes them in and shows them all the storehouses of the palace and the temple and everything else that is theirs. Like, yeah, take a look, guys. This is great. Hezekiah's invitation of these Babylonian emissaries is really a a foretaste, is a foreshadowing, is a picture of future events when the people of Babylon, when the, the king of Babylon will send his armies to take captive the people of Judah and everyone in them. This period of history bounded by two kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, father and a son, two kings who were not so wicked, but certainly foolish kings. They were hardly the shoot of Jesse, the branch, the stump that is a holy seed, the branch of David that God spoke of. They're not quite like that person that God said was coming in Isaiah 7 and 9 and 11. Certainly nothing like the king that's promised in Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, verses 1 through 5, the Lord says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable." all in the day of this king that God has promised. No king came to fulfill these words after Hezekiah. Never came. No king like this. At least not until the promised seed, who is Jesus, God's son, who was himself born of a virgin, as Matthew's gospel tells us, who is a son of David in the line of David the king, as Matthew tells us. Jesus said of himself that the spirit of the Lord was upon him in fulfillment of Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4. Jesus, the Son of uh, God, 
promises living water to those who ask in John 4 and John 7. And when John the Baptist wants to know if Jesus is the king, John sends, John uh, the Baptist is in jail awaiting execution. He wants to know, am I going to die for some guy who isn't really the Christ, the Messiah? He sends some messengers to ask Jesus, are you the Christ? Jesus responds to John with Isaiah chapter 29, 18 about the blind and the deaf being healed. And of and from Jer- uh, Isaiah 26, about a people being raised from the dead. And Isaiah chapter 8, about a scandal, that was a, a stumbling block of offense that would be for some people who did not want to believe what Jesus was doing. Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, 4 to 6, he said, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Each one of these lines is either a direct quotation from Isaiah or, or a distinct allusion to Isaiah. Jesus is saying to John, I'm the king. I'm the seed of David. I'm the, I'm the stump of Jesse. I'm, I am Emmanuel. I am the, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I'm that guy. I'm the king who comes to reign in righteousness. He says all of that to John, but in kind of a veiled way. But John knows exactly what he's talking about. The Holy One promises a king to his people. But God's not just sending a king for his people to lead them. The Holy One is also providing a servant for his people. In Isaiah chapter 40 through 55, we look at the next big chunk of this book. In Isaiah 40, there's a clear turn in Isaiah's prophecy, a change in tone, uh, a change in perspective. The oracles shift forward in time to a, a future when Babylon will have taken Judah captive. The message of these chapters is far less about coming judgment upon the people and the need of a king, but instead it's a positive word. Isaiah 41 and 2 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So by the time Judah is taken into exile, God's punishment against them will be quenched. He's done disciplining them. And now he's going to bring them back home as his servants. In Isaiah chapter 42, the Lord calls Israel, the people, his servant. And they are his servants. They are his representative people in the world. In that day, broken as they were, messed up as they were, they're still God's servants in the world, but they're not perfect. They're far from it. They're still blind. They're still deaf, as Isaiah 42 will tell us. And they still need to hear the Lord and see him clearly. And so to these blind, deaf, broken people needing a new exodus from another slave master, the Lord says in Isaiah 43, 1 to 3, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've bought you back for myself. I have called you by my name. You are mine. Verse 3 says, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God is promising in these chapters a deliverance from Babylon but not for the people's own sake, not just so that Judah will be free. He's doing all this for his own sake. In all of this, the Lord is certain to emphasize that he is delivering Judah for his glory and for his namesake because they must know above all else, as Isaiah 45, 5 tells us, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. I'm the Lord. And there is no other. Beside me, there's no God. The Lord repeats this phrase some like seven times between chapters 45 and 46. As you look, you just see it all over the place. God reminding his people, I'm the only God there is. 
I don't share my glory with anybody else. And everything I do, I do for my own praise, even rescuing you from Babylon. It's not all about you, Judah. It's all about me. So God is going to deliver them from Babylon, but he's going to do one better than just bring them out of that place. To his servant, Israel, the Lord sends a divine servant. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, a familiar passage. We often call it the suffering servant passage. Permit a longer reading. If you get there in your Bibles, follow along. Isaiah 52, 13. The Lord says to his people who, are, who will be living in exile in Babylon, He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That idea of sprinkling is like sprinkling of blood for atonement. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, the servant grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that servant, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Parts of this passage are cited all throughout the New Testament. And every time they're cited or alluded to in the New Testament, they are referring to one person, Jesus in Romans 15:21 Paul tells us that Jesus is the servant seen by many who did not know his coming. In John 12:38 and Romans 10:16 Jesus is the one whose teaching is not believed by those who hear it. In Mark 12 where Mark 9:12 we're reminded of Jesus's rejection by men. John 1 says the world beheld his glory but did not recognize him. Matthew 8 tells us that he has borne our griefs and carried our affliction. Romans 4 and 2 Corinthians 5 declare that Jesus was crucified in the place of our sins that he became our sin. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 reminds us that he bore our sins in his body on the tree and healed us by his wounds because we were all wandering sheep in need of rescue. 
Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 19, 1 Peter 2, each tell us that Jesus never uttered a word in his own defense as he stood unjustly condemned before his accusers. Matthew 27 tells us that he was buried in a rich man's tomb. And yet we could go on with even more allusions, connections to Isaiah 52 and 53 that are really about Jesus, that the New Testament authors say, this is who who we were waiting for. But let's not miss that it was, above all, the Father's will to send a servant and the Father's will to crush that servant. It was the Father's will that Christ sought to fulfill in Luke 22 when he prayed before he was arrested, not my will but yours be done, that he be the one crushed in the place of sinners. The Holy One will send a servant for his people to rescue them. That servant is Jesus. And he serves us by dying for sins and for sins of those who don't deserve it and by being raised from the dead. And he is glad to give grace and mercy, forgiveness of sin, right relationship with God, rescue from slavery to sin, not just for Jews, but for all people. Be certain of this this morning. God is a redeemer. He's a rescuer. He loves to buy people back from their sin for himself. The Holy One of Israel is a rescuer, but he rescues us from something far worse than exile or slavery in a foreign land. He rescues us from our own sin, and he rescues us from our own rebellion against him. In this, God, the Holy One of Israel, serves us. The greater serving the lesser, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he does it in his Son, Jesus, the servant, offered for our sin. A promise made 700 years before he ever came and fulfilled in spades when he did. So the Holy One presents his case against his people. He calls a prophet. He promises a king. He's going to give a servant. And finally, in Isaiah 56 through 66, we're going to see the Holy One of Israel preparing a city, a city for those that he's redeemed. The final chapters of Isaiah look even further ahead than Jesus' day, though it's hard to know if Isaiah even knew how far off that it would be. In these final chapters, the Lord shows Isaiah a vision of the kind of place that the servant king, the Messiah, God's anointed one, will prepare for his people. And the place that he prepares is not just any city, it's a holy city, it's a new Jerusalem. And yet it's even more than, than just that. Isaiah 65, 17 and 19 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, that city that he was just about to destroy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. In fact, we know that this is the land of the new king because we're told about it all the way back in Isaiah chapter 11. There, the shoot from Jesse, the king in the line of David, will make a world where, Isaiah eleven six through 10 says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Did you catch that last bit? The nations will be there. The nations will be in this city. 
this new city, this new earth, this new heavens, new earth is not just for ethnic Jews. It's not just for Judahites. No, the servant king, the Messiah, comes to make a city for people from all the earth. The offspring of Abraham, the root of David, the servant of God, will make good on the promise to bless the nations. And Jesus, the Christ, is making good on that promise even now, friends. Oh, we're not to that blessed city yet. (laughs) But we are seeing the fruit of his blessing all throughout the world today. In fact, the nations are flocking to Jesus in historic numbers today, friends. Men and women from Africa, Asia, the Americas, and Europe, from across the Pacific Rim, are coming to the King. They're hearing the gospel of a God who loves the world in such a way as to save them from their sin and to make for them a new home in His family as a part of His forever people. The city that we look forward to, the new heavens and the new earth, already has a population awaiting its arrival. It's us, dear Christian. That population is us. We all who trust Christ as the Messiah, whether Jewish, Egyptian, American, Chinese, otherwise, we are all the true Israel of God. Some natural branches, some wild branches, all grafted into the vine himself who is Christ, Jesus, and grafted in not by birth, but by faith, by trust in him. And as we have life and redemption through the Holy One of Israel, we await that new city, whereas Isaiah 25, 8 and 9 says, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And isn't this the blessed hope of all who lean on the promise of the blessed one of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, and His Messiah, the King and suffering servant, Jesus Christ? A forever home in the presence of the one who lovingly disciplines and mercifully rescues His people. In that place, as we read in Revelation 22, the end of the Bible, the people of the Holy One of Israel, all the flock of the Messiah, will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. There will be no need of light, uh, of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Is that blessed hope your blessed hope? Can you look forward to a new city with the king that God promised, the servant that he gives in Jesus, because you've come to him as king and Lord of your life? Can you look forward to that blessed reality of that new heavens, that new earth, eternal life forever among God's people because Jesus has redeemed you from your sin? You can have confidence that your home is that place if you've turned from sin and trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, if you've given your life to Him as King of of your own heart. And friend, if you need that assurance today, you can have it simply by turning from your sin trusting in Jesus, the Son of God, born of a virgin, died on a cross for your sins, raised from the dead in power and glory, giving your life to Him as King. In a prayer, in your own words, there's no magical formula to it. You can pray asking God to save you from your sin through Jesus, His servant. Prophesied by Isaiah, fulfilled in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, a promise that's held out for all who will receive it. If you need to know more about what it means to have this rescue this salvation that the Holy One of Israel provides, not just for Israelites, not just for Judahites, but for all people. Come find me after the service. Let's talk together about how you can know the salvation, this hope, this blessed reality of a future home with God forever. Christian, those of us who know that blessed hope, let's rejoice in it. Let's rejoice in the fact that God is good to his promises. Hundreds of years old, 
700 years is a long time to, to wait for God to make good on his promise. But man, when he does, does he ever. Let's rejoice in the salvation we have in Christ and the faithfulness of our God. Let's pray together.